In our first two episodes on Henry IV Part I, we looked at Howe's desire to redeem the time and his resistance to the role that his historical moment had conferred on him. In this episode, we trace Howe's transformation through the play, from the first statement of his plans, to the revelation of those plans to his father, to his partial realisation of those plans at the Battle of Shrewsbury. Ewan Fernie, professor at the Shakespeare Institute at the University of Birmingham and director of the Everything to Everybody project, guides our discussion. Our first speech comes from Act One. We meet Prince Hal among his dissolute companions in Eastcheap, apparently living an idle, dishonourable life. But when his companions leave and Hal speaks on stage alone, we see a different person and a different purpose – though Hal may not have as much control over that purpose as he believes. I know you all, and will a while uphold the unyoked humour of your idleness. Yet herein will I imitate the sun, who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world, that when he please again to be himself, being wanted, he may be more wondered at by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapours that did seem to strangle him. If all the year were playing holidays, to sport would be as tedious as to work, but when they seldom come, they wished for come, and nothing pleaseth but rare accidents. So when this loose behaviour I throw off, and pay the debt I never promise it, By how much better than my word am I? By so much shall I falsify men's hopes, and like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation glittering all my fault, shall show more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. I'll so offend to make offense a skill, redeeming time, when men think least, I will. This is an extraordinary speech to make. The, the stage is cleared at this point. So when he says, I know you all, our first instinct, I think, is to think that he means all the low life that he's associated with in Eastcheap. But many actors will say it as it were to the audience. And of course, that makes sense. And that is an extraordinary thing to say, you know, breaking the fourth wall and condescend you know Hal's reputation for a kind of arrogance or coldness you know it might be warranted here but it's also very very powerful I mean it's our job to know him not his job to know us so he says look I know you I know who, who you are presumably what you're expecting and then he says but I'm in control this is what's going to happen and uh, again there's extraordinary bravura sort of freedom for, on Shakespeare's part in doing that However, I do think that the speech is more complicated than it's sometimes thought to be, by which I mean that it it starts to admit, in spite of itself, that Hal isn't as in control as he says he is. One crucial thing here is that the the sun, of course, doesn't permit foul and ugly mists to to cover its face and then burst forth in in, in a a kind of triumphant self-indication. And... Shakespeare presumably didn't think it did. So that suggests, well, maybe he's not so much in control and actually he's just got to wait till and see what happens, which is what the, the son has to do, presumably. Another thing to sort of interrogate is 
this holiday and work analogy? Because that sounds plausible, doesn't it? It's true that if we were always on holiday, you would enjoy your holidays as much. Until you think that actually it's sort of the wrong way round, that the holiday is the wished-for reformation. But surely he's on a kind of young man's holiday in the tavern with Falstaff, and that's the work to come. So again, the deconstruction, really, of that clear opposition is a problem. I even think the kind of glittering... Reformation, so close to that word falsify, is dubious. Shakespeare himself you know, says and knows all that glitters is not gold. So when I start to think about this speech, I start to think actually it's not half as convincing as it appears to be. So redeeming time when men least think I will starts to look like a desire rather than a conviction. On the other hand, of course, it is there. It's an extraordinary thing to say. But I think straight already, this thing is dubious. You can feel sorts of various cross currents in his own mind that are, that are betrayed by his own imagery and speech. So I think it's a fascinating speech, but not a straightforward one. Our second speech comes from Act Two. While lamenting his own son's weaknesses, King Henry had praised Hotspur's strengths, calling him the theme of honour's tongue. In this speech from Hotspur's wife, Lady Percy, we hear what may nevertheless be lacking in Hotspur's honour-driven life. Oh, my good Lord, why are you thus alone? For what offence have I this fortnight been a banished woman from my Harry's bed? Tell me, sweet Lord, what is it that takes from thee thy stomach pleasure and thy golden sleep? Why dost thou bend thine eyes upon the earth and start so often when thou sit'st alone? Why hast thou lost the fresh blood in thy cheeks and given my treasures and my rights of thee to thick-eyed musing and cursed melancholy? In thy faint slumbers I by thee have watched and heard thee murmur tales of iron wars, speak terms of manage to thy bounding steed, cry, courage, to the field! And thou hast talked of sallies and retires, of trenches, tents, of palisades, frontiers, parapets, of basilisks, of cannon, culvern, of prisoners ransom, and of soldiers slain, and all the currents of a heady fight. Thy spirit within thee hath been so at war, and thus have so bestirred thee in thy sleep, that beads of sweat have stood upon thy brow like bubbles in a late disturbed stream and in thy face strange motions have appeared such as we see when men restrain their breath on some great sudden heist oh what portents are these some heavy business have my lord in hand and i must know it else he loves me not I think this is a moving and a, a really genuinely pitiable speech. You know, poor Lady Percy, who's 
wonders where her husband's gone, really, describes him in, in terms which I think suggest marital intimacy, really. She talks of his sweat-beaded brow and his bestirrings and of bubbles in a late disturbed stream and of strange motions in his face and pent-up breath and then a great sudden hest. I mean, I actually read that as a rather surprisingly direct description of an aroused man and that resonates very movingly I think with Lady Percy's express lament for having lost what she calls the treasures and my rights of thee I mean there's a frank female sexuality here which I think does Shakespeare a lot of credit but he's banished her from his bed and instead she's looking at the, you know, again, it's almost a dream vision of her husband with his fantasies of military glory and, and, and ac- activity. And what she sees is the man who should love her and should be making love to her, who should be satisfied, who should be living his life with her. And she sees instead that his whole being, including his libido, I think the picture is more or less frank about that, is lost to her and is lost in war. So I think it's a a, a remarkable speech. This is one of those moments where you hear from excluded female experience, from a representative woman in a play where women are massively sidelined. We could certainly talk about homosocial and and a, a kind of transference of intimacy and identification and of human solidarity and sharing from heterosexual relationships into relationships between male characters and I think Falstaff and Hal's relationship is much more intimate than any other in in the play but I would also suggest that actually Hal and Hotspur have a extraordinary intimacy a confounding intimacy where Hal can't in the end entirely distinguish Hotspur from himself and that's a little bit like you know the one flesh model I suppose of love and, and, and marriage in Christian culture which again Lady Percy is so deprived of here. Our third speech comes from Act 2. Falstaff and Hal are playing a final game in the tavern before Hal returns to court. First, Falstaff acted out King Henry IV. Now, Hal plays his father, while Falstaff pretends to be Hal. Falstaff makes a moving plea on his own behalf to retain his role in Hal's life, but Hal is preparing to step into a new role, and he makes that chillingly clear. But to say I know more harm in him than in myself were to say more than I know. That he is old, the more the pity. His white hairs do witness it. But that he is, saving your reverence, a whoremaster, that I utterly deny. If sack and sugar be a fault, God help the wicked. If to be old and merry be a sin, then many an old host that I know is damned. If to be fat to be hated, then Pharaoh's lean kine are to be loved. No, my good lord, banish Peto, banish Bardoth, banish Boynes, but for sweet Jack Falstaff, kind Jack Falstaff, true Jack Falstaff, valiant Jack Falstaff, and therefore more valiant being as he is old Jack Falstaff, banish not him, thy Harry's company, banish not him, thy Harry's company, banish plump Jack, 
and banish all the world. I do. I will. This is a, a really important scene. It's a scene that is very, very arresting in the theatre. And it's doing loads of different things. So we see in this how Falstaff is Hal's other father. He assumes the part of Hal's father and that just makes it plain that he's a kind of naughty father to Henry IV's respectable father. There's a foreshadowing of Hal's transformation into the heir apparent and his later rejection of Falstaff. He performs that, he rehearses it in advance and that's both shocking and it has to be said impressive. He can do it. He shows in Eastcheap what he will do and that releases a chill into those scenes. What you see here is Shakespeare really cranking up the dramatic tension Um, and I think it's an important lesson to criticism this speech because it shows that both Falstaff and Hal have, have an extraordinary claim, dramatic claim and power. I mean, on the one hand, they've lived this life together. Falstaff's a sort of alternative father or companion or beloved in a way to Hal. And on the other hand, they had these opposite destinies. And Falstaff shows a sort of terrible foreknowledge of his own banishment. And he says, look, if you banish me, you're going to banish all the extensiveness, all the embodiment, all the pleasure of the universe, everything. Banish Plump Jack and banish all the world. It's a real, as I say, you couldn't raise the stakes higher. And one expects Hal to say, well, no, let's have another drink or to accept the joke, but he doesn't. I mean, in a sense, he does perform the redemption of the time that he promises here. He whips out that glittering sword and he says, I do, I will. And what interests me about that is he doesn't say The other thing he could say, and you might be tempted to say, is no, 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 I'm just playing around here. You don't mean that much to me. You're not all the world. He doesn't deny that. He, He accepts that he'll be banishing all the world and he says and watch me do it and so you you get a sense of the power of his intention and will there what i'm trying to do is to evoke both the pathos and power of falstaff and the pathos and power of hal and i i think criticism sometimes falls into the trap of you know participating absolutely imaginatively in falstaff's claims and pleasures or alternatively particularly an older epoch saying well you know you've got to do what hal does when in fact i think Shakespeare as a dramatist is giving both claims their full due and by putting them into contention with each other he's really giving us something to think through and and respond to ourselves. Our next speech comes from the same scene. After criticising Hal harshly for his low way of life which contrasts so sharply with Hotspur's never dying honour the king tells Hal that Hotspur and his allies are now in rebellion against them. But why, Harry, do I tell thee of my foes, which are my nearest and dearest enemy? He says. Hal responds by articulating his earlier private plan to redeem the time. One might see this speech as another performance, done for the benefit of his father. But Hal's imagery has an intensity that speaks to his serious purpose. Do not think so, you shall not find it so. 
and God forgive them that so much have swayed your majesty's good thoughts away from me. I will redeem all this on Percy's head, and in the closing of some glorious day be bold to tell you that I am your son. When I will wear a garment all of blood, and stain my favors in a bloody mask which washed away shall scour my shame with it. And that shall be the day, whene'er it lights, that this same child of honor and renown, this gallant hot spur, this all-praised knight, and your unthought of Harry chance to meet. For every honor sitting on his helm would they were multitudes, and on my head my shame's redoubled, for the time will come that I shall make this northern youth exchange his glorious deeds for my indignities. Percy is but my factor, good my lord, to engross up glorious deeds on my behalf, and I will call him to so strict account that he shall render every glory up, yea, even the slightest worship of his time, or I will tear the reckoning from his heart. This, in the name of God, I promise here, the which, if he be pleased, I shall perform. I do beseech your majesty may salve the long-grown wounds of my intemperance. If not, the end of life cancels all bans, and I will die a hundred thousand deaths ere break the smallest parcel of this vow. So. Again, this, this is Hal speaking earnestly about what he thinks he's doing, and to some extent he is doing. But I think it's... Nothing is simple. It, it, you know, we are in the real world of ambivalence and historical complicity and, and so forth. And it, it's not true that he's not in earnest here. He really is in earnest. And, and we hear that word redeem again. He says to his father here that he will redeem everything on Percy's head, meaning that the death of Hotspur will sort of magically restore him in his, his father's eyes, or even more magically sort of restore him absolutely. What I think is interesting here is that when he says, I'm going to do that, and then I'll have the courage to tell you that I am your son, quite a vulnerable thing to say to your own father. It, it suggests more intimate self-doubt than he's perhaps confessed to but I'm interested in the image here he says when I will wear a garment all of blood and stain my favours in a bloody mask which the way shall scour my shame with it I think what gives it all the more intensity is I think he's imagining a second birth really I mean anybody who has witnessed a birth that you know a baby might well emerge covered in a garment of, of blood the intense physicality of this suggests a psychological need for it to be an absolute second life. 
which really gives us an extraordinary fix on Hal's yearning here. He, he also seems to think that he can just swap places with Hotspur, exchanging his glorious deeds for my indignities. I mean, it's a strange model, isn't it, of, of human life? That to some extent, he's parceled out some of his own life to this man, that he's living his own psychological life, partly publicly in relation to this plan of you know, that destiny has bequeathed to him and that he's adopted. He says, Percy is but my factor to engross up glorious deeds on my behalf. It was both chilling and arresting, as if you could simply sort of psychologically appoint somebody else who you intend to vanquish as a, as a sort of second self who's doing part of your work in the world. And this is an absolute promise to his father and he says that he would rather die a hundred thousand deaths than break the smallest parcel and you know the least bit of this promise so as so often with this play and with Shakespeare I think you know we might step away from the play and think well you know he's just doing what he has to with his dad or and, and in relation to this master plan really and his heart really belongs to Falstaff but actually as as I hope we've seen to look closely at this speech is to see that it's often not the way that Shakespeare achieves the intensity he achieves by ratcheting up, as we've seen elsewhere, both alternatives. Our next speech comes from Act 5. Hal and Hotspur have confronted one another in battle, and Hal, perhaps to our surprise, has actually fulfilled his promise and beaten his rival. Hotspur is dying, and all the intensity that Hal had directed towards Hotspur's defeat expresses itself now in Hal's tenderness after his death. Oh, Harry, thou hast robbed me of my youth. I better brook the loss of brittle life than those proud titles thou hast won of me. They wound my thoughts worse than thy sword my flesh. But thought the slave of life, and life time's fool, and time that takes survey of all the world must have a stop. Oh, I could prophesy, but that the earthy and cold hand of death lies on my tongue. No, Percy, thou art dust, and food for for worms, brave Percy. Fare thee well, great heart. Ill-weaved ambition, how much art thou shrunk? When that this body did contain a spirit, a kingdom for it was too small a bound, but now two paces of the vilest earth is room enough. This earth that bears thee dead bears not alive so stout a gentleman. If thou wert sensible of courtesy, I should not make so dear a show of zeal. But let my favours hide thy mangled face, and even in thy behalf I'll thank myself for doing these fair rites of tenderness. Adieu, and take thy praise with thee to heaven. Thy ignominy sleep with thee in the grave, but not remembered in thy epitaph. So the first thing I want to, to draw attention to really is just the detail of what Hal says when he mourns the man whose life he's just ended. Let's be clear about that. I mean, he eulogises him as a sort of 
brother or even even more intimately as a kind of alter ego farewell great heart and so forth and when that this body did contain a spirit a kingdom for it was too small a bound but now two paces of the vilest earth is room enough we've got to imagine how looking at this dead man and seeing how his body couldn't express this extraordinary spirit but i think what's really extraordinary is when he says if thou wert sensible of courtesy i should not make so dear a show of zeal but let my favours hide thy mangled face he covers hotspur's face and then he says and even in thy behalf i'll thank myself for doing these fair rites of tenderness due and i don't think he knows who he is there i think how both sees himself as the dead man on the ground and the man who is mourning him because he, he speaks for he's killed hotspur he honors hotspur and then he thanks himself on hotspur's behalf for honoring hotspur you've got shakespeare's extraordinary sensitivity there he realizes that for hal this is so much a, a kind of dream fulfillment in a sense that hal can't believe it's happening and he hal is so identified with hotspur here that he can hardly distinguish himself from him and so there's a kind of extraordinary love in some ways hal is so courteous to after Hotspur's death is I think to some extent does redeem the time I must say in this particular case for me there's a real nobility and beauty in that moment and it redoubles this impression that Hotspur is almost part of himself. After Hal eulogises Hotspur he sees the figure of Falstaff lying on the ground apparently dead and offers a eulogy for him too but when Hal leaves the stage Falstaff rises up his death was just a pretense, or, as he calls it, a counterfeit. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Scott Ripley for Hal. I Know You All. For Falstaff and Hal, but to say I know more harm in him. And for Hotspur, Hal, and Falstaff. O oh, Harry, thou hast robbed me of my youth. Kamisha Lewis for Lady Percy, O oh, my good lord. Julian Glover for King Henry IV, I know not whether God will have it so. And how many thousands. Keith Hamilton Cobb for Hal, do not think so. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. Alexander Legat, A Modern Perspective, Henry IV, Part I. Emma Smith, This is Shakespeare. And the following editions of Henry IV, Part I. The 2002 Arden Shakespeare and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more about the show by visiting shakespeareforall.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>